invite you all to pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, because you, Lord, are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, thrilled to have you at St. Paul's this morning. Thrilled to be able to open up God's Word with you. Um, we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Um, whenever, I can't help myself, whenever I preach from Malachi or even talk about Malachi, um, I'm reminded of my seminary professor who referred to him as Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, I know you've heard it, it just never gets old. It's a great joke. So Malachi chapter 2. Um, Malachi's the last book of the Old Testament. It's a short book, um, and, but, but there's something, some weight behind it, um, as there is all the books of Scripture, obviously, but, but something about being the last book before the New Testament um, lends some, some thrust and some weight to Malachi. He's, he's propelling us forward in a new age that is to come, it feels like. And, and, and surely that's, that's, there's something about that, because after Malachi... You know, there's about 400 years of, of silence. There's no more prophets. There's no more um, books of Scripture after Malachi for the, um, for, the, for the nation of Israel. The next thing we have is Matthew telling us about the birth of Jesus. And so there, there's something with Malachi that, that is going to, to, to point us forward directly into the New Testament um, there, there certainly is that with all Old Testament books, something that's looking ahead. But, but Malachi, it's got a, a gravitas to it, I guess, if you will, because it's the last book of the Old Testament. And so, before we get into our passage this morning, I think it's going to be helpful if we consider some of the background. What is happening? Why is Malachi writing this book? What, what's going on with the nation of Israel that would give rise to this prophecy from Malachi? Um, it's important to remember, he is writing... He's prophesying after Israel's return from exile. For those of you who are not familiar with the story, Israel was called to be the people of God. Um, God was going to make them his people. He was going to be their God. He was going to raise them up and give them this land. And from that land and in the presence of God, they were going to be a light to the nations. The world would look at Israel, and through Israel, they would see the glory of the God that Israel worshipped. And that's how God was going to reconcile the whole world back to himself, is through his chosen people. As we all know, that didn't work out so well. Um, they didn't worship the God that chose them. They worshipped other gods. Time and time again, they offered um, pagan sacrifices in the temple created for the glory of God. Time and time again, they turned their backs to God and turned them toward other gods or other powers to rescue them in their time of need. Time and time again, they forgot that it was God who brought them out of slavery. It was God who called them to be a people. It was God who saved them time and time again. They completely and totally forget this over and over. And so finally... Um, drastic measures are called for. And so in an effort to bring his people back, God exiles them. He sends the Babylonian army, and they come in, and they sack Israel, and they sack Jerusalem, and they gather up the people of God, and they, they track them across the desert to Iraq. 
away from the presence of God, they think, away from their temple, away from God's promises, and there they stay for 70 years. After that, um, the Persians take over, okay? Think um, the Babylonians or Iraq, think Persia, you can think Iran. Um, They come over, they take over the whole area that the Babylonians have, and they say, okay, Hebrew people, you can go home. Go back to your homeland, go back to your towns, go back to your cities, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, and worship your God in your land. Know that we're still in charge, okay? Don't forget that. We're still ruling over you. You don't have any power on your own rights. We'll let you go worship your your local gods. You can do that. So that's where they are. They've come back. But it's not the same, right? Their temple is a mere shadow of the great temple that they had before under Solomon's reign. Um, The presence of God is not a tangible thing like it was in the days of old. They didn't even have their own king. And so they're asking God, where are you? Why don't you love us anymore, God? Aren't we doing the right things? Aren't we worshiping you now in the right way in the temple? Yeah, we messed up before, but, but now we're going through the right motions and we're, we're doing it the right way. Isn't that what you want? We're bringing you sacrifices like you asked us. We're not worshiping other gods. What about all those promises, God, that you made to us? That we would be your people and you would be our God. That you would dwell with us in this land. That we would have a a king on the throne in the line of David forever. That's the attitude of the people. It's not, I mean, it's understandable. Where are you, God? We've all asked that question before. Um, But God's response um, is with this prophecy in Malachi. And the bottom line is, God says, is I do love you. I have always loved you. I will fulfill my promises. I will never stop loving you. But your worship, your worship springs from a faithless heart. You're going through the motions, but you don't have faith. You don't believe. Therefore, your offerings are worthless to me. They're, they're worthless Without faith in your heart, your offerings to me are worthless. The problem, it seems then, is not with God, right? But with his people. With their continued faithlessness. And we saw that last week in in Malachi 1. They're offering faithless offerings. Remember what they're giving God? They're giving him blind calves. They're giving him spoiled food. And they're bringing it to the temple and saying, here you go, God. This is what we got for you. And God says, you wouldn't bring that stuff to the Persian governor. What would he do to you if you brought him a blind calf as your offering? And yet you bring it to me. And so we see in Malachi 1 these faithless offerings. And this week um, in Malachi 2, we see that the people actually have faithless relationships with each other. Um, it's, It's not just that their hearts are faithless towards God. They've got this sort of vertical disconnect between their hearts and God. But when that happens, Malachi is going to show us, we have a disconnect with each other. 
If we have faithless hearts, then we're going to have faithless relationships. And that is what our passage is about this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, this will be a great time to open them up. We're in Malachi chapter 2. It's the last chapter of the Old Testament. Um, we'll probably get it up on the screen as well. But if you have your Bibles or something on your phone or your, if you have a tablet, uh, pull that out. It's nice to follow along on, on something that you have in your hands. Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. We're going to read now verses um, roughly 10 and about half of 11. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. Judah is another name for Israel, the Hebrew people. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. So here we see Malachi calling them out. He's saying, your relationships with each other are what? He uses that word. He uses faithless. Judah has been faithless. Why are we faithless to one another? Judah, Israel is being faithless with each other because their hearts are faithless to God. They're profaning the covenant of God by being faithless to one another. And being faithless to one another, they're indicating their faithlessness towards God. And so, if you remember in chapter 1, Malachi has made a point of reminding them where they came from, okay? Um, And he references a story about Esau and Jacob. These were Isaac's sons. And the question is, who is the lineage going to pass on to? Who is going to get the blessing? And this is a big deal because it's not just the blessing, but, but who is going to be the next in line to be the father of God's chosen people? Is it going to be Esau, the firstborn, the one who's seemingly more righteous? I mean, he's certainly seen more upright in character. Or is it going to be Jacob, the younger son? He would not traditionally get a birthright. And not only that, he's a little sketchy. He doesn't always tell the truth. He's deceitful. Who's God going to choose, Esau or Jacob? Who would you choose? God chooses Jacob. Jacob gets the birthright, deceitfully, mind you. Um, But that was God's choice. And so Jacob would then have um, 12 sons. It would be the 12 tribes of Israel, and he would be one of the great fathers of the nation. Esau would be relegated to the desert, and his people would live there for generations and generations. And God is reminding them in the first chapter of Malachi, he's saying, Are you not Jacob's children? Why did I choose you to be my people? Was it because you were really great? Was it because you were really honest or really righteous? Was it because you were really good hunters or really good manly men? No. You didn't earn anything from me. I chose you because I loved you. I chose you simply because I chose you. Now that's an important thing, okay, to remember that. If God chose this people based on no virtue of their own then what grounds do they have to treat one another faithlessly? What grounds do they have to look down on each other? What grounds do they have to be, um, as we'll get into, 
these terrible husbands divorcing their wives and, 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 and marrying people they shouldn't be marrying? What, what grounds do they have for being terrible friends or terrible co-workers? They hadn't earned any status before God. And so they're all on equal footing. And so the argument is this. Don't we have one Father, verse 10? Has not God created us? Why on earth are we treating each other this way? If we all have the same God and Father. You're nothing special. And so... If they had faith that this was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob who saved them from slavery in Egypt, who elected them on no account of their own virtue, if they had that faith, then that would be lived out in their relationships. And Malachi is saying, your faithless heart towards God is affecting your friendships. It's affecting your marriages. It's affecting your workplaces. And the reason these relationships are out of line are because you are faithless in your heart to God. And so the conclusion of verse 11, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. They have faithless relationships because they have faithless hearts. Um, and then Malachi gives two examples. I don't want to dive into these too far, but I think it's important to at least to, to, to note on these examples because it does make up a significant portion of our reading this morning. Um, two ways, Malachi says, that you are living this out, okay? He's not just accusing them. He's showing them um, where they've fallen short. Uh, the first one is Israel has taken foreign wives. They're marrying pagans. They're marrying um, Men and women who don't profess a faith in the God of Israel. Israel has taken foreign wives. And number two, divorce is rampant in God's covenant people. Divorce is rampant in God's covenant people. And Malachi is saying, look, these faithless relationships are a result of your faithless heart. Now, why would these be issues? Why would it be so bad to take a foreign wife? What exactly is the problem with divorce? Certainly, all these other nations around us are doing it. That, in and of itself, is the problem. Israel was called to be set apart. They were called to be different. They were giving um, this, this law by this gracious and loving God to say, this is the way life works best when you are living under my love and my graciousness. This is what life looks like. And when people see you living differently, they will see my glory and my grace and my love for you. But when, when they see you taking pagan wives and letting pagan, um, pagan worship come into your community, they're seeing a, a vision of God, a vision of me that's not true. When they see you breaking covenants that you made in my name and in my presence, they see a vision of me that is not true, and it is false. Imagine the nations looking in at Israel. They're thinking, well, what does their behavior tell us about the God that they worship? Because look, it says it right here. They're going to the temple. They're offering sacrifices. They're going to church on Sunday mornings. 
They're, they're proclaiming their belief in God. What does their life tell us about this God that they obviously believe in? Well, their lives are full of pagan marriages and divorce. And our lives, you know, the nations around Israel, oh, they're full of pagan marriages and divorce. Their God must be just the same as our God. Do you see how that works? That's a problem. It's the result of a faithless heart. And that is, of course, the reason Israel's behaving this way. It comes from a lack of faith. Um, why would they take foreign wives in the first place? About for status? Maybe a healthy dowry, right? Better standing in the eyes of, of the world around them? Why would they get divorced in the first place? Maybe they have a lack of a male heir. Maybe they've just been appointed a better opportunity with another family. They're basing their status and their worth on earthly things. Do you see that? And God is saying, your status is based on me, the one true God who created you and loved you and chose you. That's where you find your identity. That's who you are. And when you start basing things on the world around you, then you're, you're, you're denying that. You don't have faith. You don't believe that God is who he says he is. If these other things all of a sudden are more important. And so, so God is saying, listen, I'm calling you to act differently. I'm calling you to be a different sort of people. And that's not going to be easy. It'll require a faithful heart. You will have to trust me. And Israel wasn't. The faithlessness of the people are reflected in the faithlessness of their relationships. Now, when I got to this point in the sermon, I was feeling pretty convicted myself. Um, kind of hope you are too. Maybe wondering, well, what, what is the solution? <laughs> Certainly, there's got to be a solution. The solution is not to try harder. And some of you might be thinking this. I certainly think this from time to time. Well, if I could just be a better husband, okay, then I um, could well up this faithfulness in my heart. Or, or maybe if I, if I could just be a better Christian, and if I could do better and more Christian things and do them in the right way, maybe a faithfulness will, will well up in my heart towards God. But here's the deal. How many, have y'all tried that before? How long does that last? Like three days? You know, I can really get on it for three days. I can be really good. 5 a.m., okay, I'm up. I'm reading my Bible, morning prayer. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh, Thursday's hard. You can't do it. You can't do it on your, your own accord. No matter how hard you try, you can't well up faithfulness in your heart to God. You can't well up faithfulness in your heart towards your wife or your husband or your friends or your coworkers. If your love of each other, if your love of your spouse or your neighbor does not well up out of your love for God, there's very little chance that you can consistently treat them faithfully. Israel's 
love for each other was not rooted in their love of the God who chose them and loved them. And so their community was falling apart. There's got to be another solution. And we see that in Malachi. Uh, we're, we're not necessarily going to read it right now, but, but if you read on to chapter 3 in Malachi, you would see a vision of the Lord. And Malachi is basically saying, God's saying through Malachi, he's saying, I know you're pretty hopeless. I know you're pretty useless. But someone is coming. The Lord is coming. The messenger will come before him, and then the Lord will appear. And when he arrives, no one will be able to stand before him. Everyone will be guilty in his sight. When the Lord arrives, everyone will stand condemned. But, Malachi goes on to say, he will refine the people of God. He will purify them. He will purify their relationships. He will refine their hearts. And then, and then their offerings to God will be righteous instead of faithless. And then their relationships with each other will be righteous instead of faithless. That's the promise we see here in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And and these two pages right here span 400 years. And the very next book of the New Testament is this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, and the son of Jacob. That Jesus is the Lord who has come. He is the messenger of the new covenant. He is the one. When we stand before Jesus, we we are broken. We are worthless. We cannot stand before him except for his grace, except for the fact that he died on the cross so that our faithlessness, our sinfulness could be forgiven. And by the grace of God, we could stand before him. And so Jesus takes our worthless offerings And he makes them worthy. He takes our faithless hearts and he makes them faithful. And so we come before God, not based on our own righteousness, but on Jesus's. And we we come to each other, not expecting something of them that they can't be, but but loving them like Jesus loved us. We get our hearts right with God through Jesus Christ. And our relationships can begin to get right with each other. was to consider a couple of things in light of that, and then we'll be done. Malachi does have a lot here to say about marriage. I think um, when I read Malachi and I consider what's happening in Israel, certainly marriage is an example he's giving of faithless relationships in general. But at the same time, he is talking a lot about our marriages. I don't want to... I won't be so naive as to suggest that we can be completely rid of divorce in this age. Um, It has happened. It's going to happen. But I would just at least ask you to consider this. Before you walk down that road, before you walk down that road of a faithless relationship, 
cool. Goodness. Ask yourself, have I loved my spouse? Have I tried to love my spouse as much as Jesus loved me? And just remember this. Jesus didn't love you when you were sitting pretty. He didn't love you. He does love you, but he doesn't. It's not only that he loves you when you're praying the right prayers and doing the right things and serving the right people. Jesus loved you while you were still a sinner. Jesus loved you before you loved him. Jesus loves you even when you don't love him. And so before we walk down this path of divorce, of hardship in our marriages like that, ask yourself, have I loved my spouse like Jesus loved me? And the answer might be yes. And you might have been doing this for a long time, and, and it might just be time. Um, but, but can we please at first go down this road of sacrificial love? And you're not going to do that by yourself. It's easy for me to say it. It's a lot harder to do it. Um, but, but there are resources and there are people who want to walk that road with you. I, I would love to, triple love to. There's any number of folks in this congregation who have, who have walked down a very difficult road of suffering in their marriage, and God has redeemed that. And so that would be my question for you. But along those lines, um, divorce is a reality. And if that's you, and I know that's many of you, if, if that is you, I pray that you will be able to come to the throne of God in the grace of Jesus Christ. That if there's any shame from that, if you're feeling shame in the community, if you're, if you're feeling shame in the church, I pray that you will be able to walk this road to the foot of the cross. I pray that God will give you the grace to repent of any way you might have contributed to that. And I pray that you will know his newness and fullness of life, that even in the midst of this very broken world and broken relationships, that God's grace is abundant. So that's the first thing. Are our faithless hearts being lived out, are our faithful hearts being lived out in faithful marriages? First thing. Second thing. Are we being a faithful witness to our community? Um, along the same lines of marriage, are we loving this community in the way that Jesus Christ loved us? I'm not going to dwell on this. You know what I'm talking about, but I would just ask this question. If the world looked at our community, whether it's this church or your life group or your group of, of Christian friends who go and eat lunch every day at Chick-fil-A with your Bibles open, if they looked at you, and that's a good thing, by the way, I like Chick-fil-A and I like my Bible, what would they say about you, okay? And what are you hoping they'll say about you? Will they look at you and say, that is a morally upright community? They speak the truth. They don't tolerate sin in their lives. And they don't tolerate people coming in who have sin in their lives. Is that how people are going to see you? And do you want them to? Is that how Jesus loved us? Or are people going to look at your um, community? And obviously we want to be morally upright. And obviously we want to be repentant of sin. But what do we want the world to see about us? 
that they want us to look at us and say, wow, those people are full of grace. And those people are full of love. And even though they don't agree, and even though they they have better aspirations for me, I know that they will love me unconditionally as Christ loved them. How's God, or how's the world looking at us as a community? And then finally, lastly, is this. Um, Some of you, through what we've been calling faithless relationships, have been presented with a skewed version of God and a skewed version of Jesus. And you've been hurt by other Christians. You've been hurt by the church. And for some reason, you've been shamed or led to believe that until you have it all figured out, you probably shouldn't go to Jesus. That's not what Malachi is saying. Malachi is promising one who is to come who will forgive us, who will refine us, who will purify us, who will take our faithless hearts and make them faithful, who will take our faithless relationships and make them loving. And he's inviting you to do that today. Come and learn about the Jesus who loves you and forgives you. Come and learn about the Jesus who, who welcomes your repentance, who, who expects repentance, but in his repentance offers unconditional grace. In your repentance, he offers unconditional grace, unconditional forgiveness. And come and experience, I, I pray that we can be this way, experience a community that will show you the love and the grace and the forgiveness that we have received in Jesus Christ. And may all of our hearts be faithful to God so that we may be faithful to each other. Let's pray.